вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. As you know, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you listen to this podcast regularly and you'd like to support us, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org. That's the website for the podcast. And find that Patreon button up there in the right-hand corner. Click on it and throw some money our way and join the table of ranks. So, um, you know, if you've been paying any attention to the war in Ukraine, um, the Ukrainian offensive against Russian forces, which has pushed Russia back quite substantially to everyone's uh, surprise, I think. Um, but the other aspect of the war is the economic war and the economic component. And, you know, we're right around the six month anniversary, if we want to use that word, of the invasion. There was a lot of assessments of the Russian economy and how deeply the sanctions, the unprecedented sanctions against Russia, mostly by Western countries and their allies, has had an effect on the economy. And so I figured we might as well see what people are saying, what, it, what is going on with the economic aspect of the war, the economic war, and how Russia's economic isolation on the one hand, and of course, the fallout of the sanctions in the West uh, have impacted and shaped things so far. So I thought the best people to turn for this, I thought the two best people to address this issue are Ilya Mitbev and Ben Aras. Uh, just a word, this, this discussion was recorded on September 16th, 2022. Uh, just to let you know, you know, things change every day with this conflict. So some of the things that might have been said in the interview may be no longer relevant or were, you know, are even further along than when they were stated two weeks ago. So Ben Aris is the founder and editor of BNE Italy News, a specialist business, economics, and finance outlet covering Russia and Eastern Europe. You can follow Ben on Twitter, and I highly recommend you do so, at at BNE Editor. And Ilya Mitveyev is a political economist formerly based in St. Petersburg and a member of the editorial collective of Posli, a new Russian anti-war website, and the co-founder of the New Political Science School. And I'll put links to Intelli News and Ben's Twitter and Ilya's projects on the post for this podcast. So... Here's Ben Aris and Ilya Mitveev. So, um, you know, we're over six months in this, this war, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the economic uh, outcomes are, are massive and continuing and unfolding. And, you know, there's lots of speculation of where things will end up. And one of the, the interesting things that have happened is that um, some have said, that there has been a process of deglobalization that has begun in Russia over the last several months with you know over 40 countries and putting sanctions on Russia more than a thousand companies have either left the country or limited their operations so just to start I'd like to have both of you paint a picture of what Russia's place in the world economy was before the war so uh, let's start with you Ben 
Um, yeah, it was integrated. Um, its exports of energy commodities go worldwide. Um, and in terms of consumer goods, you know, it traded um, heavily with the EU, which is its neighbor, which makes the most sense. And moreover, the EU is a producer of lots of desirable, high-quality goods. And what's happened now is that's broken. And Russia was an open market economy with an open balance of payments, you know, current account. You could send money in and out, no problems. It was easy to do business. And now it's not. Now it's kind of closed. Um, and we see that in the transport. You can't get to Russia unless you fly over Turkey from here. And the goods, you can't get the goods. And, of course, we're talking about sanctions. The, the ban on sending all this technology and machinery is deeply, deeply damaging. Um, stupid things, like obviously you can't send you know, high computers and dual-use uh, microelectronics, but silly things like seed potatoes. Russia is entirely dependent on imported seed potatoes. It doesn't have its own. And so now everybody's scrambling like mad to remake things. And Putin's plan is obviously to turn and, and trade with the Global South, uh, import equipment from China, India, but um, large categories of goods are just not are just missing. They come from Germany, particularly with machinery, Germany, the States for electronics. And it's kind of inconceivable. I mean, it's back to the Cold War um, where they just can't get a lot of things that they need. And shockingly, Nabulina saw this right away. Already in March, she, she came out, um, the central bank governor, came out with a statement telling Russian business, you're going to have to trade down, go back two generations of technology if you're going to stay in business, back to the 80s, literally, that kind of technology. So it's been an enormous change. And the Russian economy, it'll still function, it'll still grow, it'll still work, um, but the productivity has been slashed. And before this started, the growth potential of Russia was already only 2%, when it should have been 6 or 7 because Putin was taking all the investment and putting it into the National Welfare Fund, you know, this fiscal fortress. And now it's been cut again to, I don't know, maybe 1%. That's the fastest the economy can grow. So basically, we're talking about stagnation for the next decade or until Putin dies, until this is all over, if ever. Ilya, you know, Russia, because it's mostly commodity exports, importing technology, importing com uh, goods, consumer goods, it is in the kind of capitalist world system. It's in the periphery. Can you add more to its peripheral status and and you know what was the ec the thinking before the war, if you know about the role of the economy and the impact on the economy from the Russian government's perspective? Right. So. Uh, I would agree completely with uh, Ben's assessment, and I would add that uh, this deglobalization actually began in 2014 already. So with the first round of sanctions, with uh, this first uh, round of confrontation with the West, uh, we could see this in uh, various statistics, for instance, uh, corporate debt, uh, foreign corporate debt of Russian corporations declined after 2014. It, it, uh, it was on the rise before, and then it declined uh, because uh, Russian corporations were unable to uh, get uh, the money on international financial markets. So uh, this is not completely new. But of course, the scale of this process of you know severing ties with uh, the global economy exploded 
after the war. And uh, the thing is, um, uh, you do, the paradox of Russian governance is that on the one hand, there are very competent people like uh, Elvira Nabiulina, uh, whom Ben already mentioned. But at the same time, there is no uh, real strategy for restarting economic growth. So you have competent people in specific positions, but you do not have a kind of project for, you know, like a comprehensive project for uh, rebuilding the economy. And uh, my working hypothesis is that it was, paradoxically, it was easier for Putin to start this confrontation with the West and to start this whole, you know, period of uh, extreme hostility then uh, start a kind of economic project, comprehensive economic project, because uh, in order to do that, uh, he needed to um, go against the interests of entrenched elites, right? And, you know, the, the, the tragic situation is that it was easier for him to start the war than to actually restart the economy. What are you support? What are you support? Because there has been efforts over the last decade or so of import substitution, trying to nationalize the elites, trying to bring offshore money back to Russia. Um, it seems that uh, you know. What is your assessment? In, in and are you both surprised, or even if you agree, Ben, that there is no large economic project or plan that has you know been, I don't know, thought of or even tried to be implemented. Well, there is a big economic plan. I mean, this was the whole process of the national projects. Uh, and there was a lot of thought about that and started with the main degrees. Um, then Kudrin came up with what I called Plan K, and it made total sense. And they were throwing money at it, and it was quite ambitious. Um, and it just didn't really work, did it? I mean, they, uh, they never managed. That's Russia. They, they know exactly what to do. I mean, the whole uh, liberal economics team, the Bulina, Fudrin, Siliyanov, they all know what to do. I mean, that's never been the issue. It's been implementation. And the National Projects was an interesting one to watch because um, in the first year, uh, nothing really happened. And then there was a meeting and everyone got shouted at and it began to go forward. Um, and I was hoping, like in 2020, um, that it was really going to pick up steam. And we started following it closely, and people actually were getting into the trenches and doing things. But a lot of things, they just failed to do anything. And the import substitution has been a theme forever, and it never really went anywhere. And promoting SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises, was another big theme, and also never really went anywhere. And it was just the entrenched problems that just didn't get tackled. And I was with a taxi driver once, um, as one, as a journalist does. And uh, he was saying, yeah, and he earns decent money driving a taxi, whatever it was, like 1500 bucks a month in Moscow is enough to live uh, okay. And he had a kiosk and he was selling hachipuri and you know, uh, ethnic stuff. He, he was a Georgian. And um, he said the problem was the police came around and, you know, if it started doing well, they would just take a thousand rubles, take 5,000 rubles. And the better he did, the more they asked for. And he just gave up. He said, it's just like not going anywhere. And, and that's always been Russia's problem. Um, and it's, it's too big and there's no incentive. And the second problem is that it's actually very difficult to establish these things. And I always point to the cheese saga in 2014. 
because Russia never developed a cheese, domestic cheese industry of anything other than the rubbish cheese from the Soviet era that they had before. And suddenly cheese was gone, banned by Putin and tit for tat sanctions. And you couldn't get cheese. It just really, it simply disappeared. Um, and then what happened is then all the supermarkets, they started running around uh, trying to find cheese. And then there was a market for it. And the reason why the domestic industry never developed was that you could buy better quality French cheese at a cheaper price than you could possibly make it in Russia. So the economics of it never made any sense to set up your own industry. And once it was taken out of the market, once there was none, then finally people invested. And because the consumer would buy more expensive, poorer quality Russian camembert. So suddenly it made economic sense to do it. And that's also been a problem because Russia skipped over in the 90s this, this phase which everyone else has gone through, whereby um, you get international producers coming in, setting up basic light industry because of the cheap labor costs. And for them, it makes more sense to make it in Russia or Ukraine, wherever, and then export it back to France because it's cheap. But because Russia actually, because the ruble was so strong, uh, it made more sense to send camembert to Moscow because the price Russians were paying for it, if you remember how expensive all that stuff was in the 90s, you made huge money. And so because you skipped over that like manufacturing stage, that it just never developed. And Russia's then, because of the oil money, just got richer and richer, and they started importing everything. The entire spectrum of machinery, equipment, everything. And so suddenly now that's no longer possible. We've got to go back and build all this stuff that never existed because it made no sense and do it with enormous cost, but without the equipment because that's now off limits. So it's got this huge challenge um, and I don't see how they're going to do it. I mean, they're talking about developing their own technology, but you know that will take 20 years, if ever. Russia's so far behind. Uh, Ilya, you 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 said that you know it was easier for Putin to start the war than to actually go against entrenched elite interests. So do you see do you see the the a lot of the economic problems? I mean, Ben seems to be hinting at this to some extent too. Is is a corruption entrenched elites? It's it's a political problem. Yeah, most certainly, and I would say that uh, it's not just uh, corruption. In fact. It's also uh, a lack of uh, capacity in the government system. So uh, all those uh, managers in uh, state corporations, of course, they're all stealing money. But another problem is that there are no real coordination, coordinating institutions that are able, you know, to, if Russia relies on state capitalism, as it does, actually, with this huge role of the state in the economy, there is no corresponding in state you know, in state capacity, in uh, the ability of all these ministries to coordinate, to manage uh, the economy. And uh, that's another problem. And uh, again, I would agree with Ben. Uh, we know that the share of imports in GDP in Russia is the highest in uh, the BRICS uh, group. It's higher than in China, in uh, Brazil, in India. So uh, Russia relies more on imports of everything basically. But then again, the thing about import substitution is that it's not necessarily only for the domestic market. 
So we know from uh, the most successful examples from uh, those East Asian tigers, like South Korea, like Taiwan, we know that they didn't just import substitute. What they did was they uh, helped those industries that were eventually uh, exporting goods on the global market, right? And uh, I was actually studying this topic, and uh, Russian government, again, like Ben said, they understand everything. So they, they said exactly that. Even Denis Mantorov, they said, we understand that import substitution only for the domestic market is a kind of dead end. So we understand that because Russian domestic market is too narrow for a real import substitution. We need to aim for the international market. So we need to kind of, we need to... Um, learn to produce complex goods in order to export them to other countries as well. So this is what they said themselves. They understand the problem. But then uh, if we look at the numbers, they set up uh, a kind of uh, fund to help those uh, high-tech exports because you know in order to, to have this pipeline import substitution and then you have high-tech exports. But this fund was so small that they didn't make any difference at all. So like... Like they say, they understand the problem, but they didn't really put any real effort in, into doing it. Because uh, I, I understand that the global economy is very competitive. You need to compete against uh, very successful producers like, like South Korea, like China, you know, like, like Japan and Germany. But at the same time, it's the only way forward. But, and they didn't really pursue it. They understood it, but they didn't really pursue it. Let, let me add on that point um, a nice illustration um, that cars, that Russia has this giant car industry and it has good engineers and it has, you know, the Gaz and, and Avdovaz um, and Avdovaz was being run by Renault Nissan, so it had technology and know-how. And the same thing there. And, but a car at the end of the day is a relatively simple piece of engineering compared to some of the high-tech things that the Chinese are exporting. And car exports, the new models that were coming out, they were just beginning to happen. And I was very encouraged by that. But if you're doing a car business, I mean, look at Romania and Dacia, which is also a Renault plant. That's exported everywhere. They're driving around on the road here in Berlin. And Russia's failure to build up an export car uh, industry was very, I thought, indicative of all the problems that they have. That they, uh, they ended up selling them on the local market and they couldn't make anything that was appealing internationally. And if they have all those resources, you know, those huge factories and all the money that was going into it, to fail on that is indicative of the, the, the fact they sort of get to cover the local market and don't get any further. And if you can't do it with cars, you know, what hope do you have of doing it with anything else a bit further up the scale in terms of technology? You know, I've been I've been struck, or maybe I shouldn't be so struck, but the fact that imperialism as a term has have a new lease on life. Um, it's being used in mainstream political discourse, which is something that I thought I'd never see. Um, and, you know, when we when people have talked about imperialism for the last century or so, there's always an underlying economic logic. Are there any economic logics underlying this war? Either both Putin's invasion, but also the, the, the Western response to, to the war? This is... Uh... The most uh, difficult question, probably, for uh, uh, researchers and experts who consider themselves left-wing, because on the one hand, we see imperialism. So it's not uh, a coincidence that 
everyone is talking about imperialism right now, even completely mainstream publications, because if you listen to Putin, he's such an open imperialist. You cannot just ignore this topic because he's, you know, speaking directly in imperialist language, almost as a caricature. He's literally saying, you know, there are two types of countries, the colonizers and the colonized, and nothing has changed since the 19th century. And you can either be a sovereign country that colonizes other countries, or you can be a country without sovereignty. So a colonized country, and Russia will always be a colonizer, and Ukraine basically should be colonized by Russia. So this is literally what he's saying. And uh, this is why it's not uh, it's not like uh, it's uh, some kind of artificial thing that people talk about imperialism. I think it's perfectly understandable. But then the question is, uh, Marxists should look for uh, an economic logic, like you said, to this imperialism. But uh, there is none, in my opinion. It's not it's not it's not economic, right? So it's not uh... completely exactly right. There's no logic to it whatsoever. There's no economic advantage. Yeah, and uh, it all began in 2014. It was already clear that th- this confrontation, you know, it, it hurts Russian business, not just Russian economy, but Russian business interests. It hurts these interests directly. And uh, not just uh, through sanctions, but also quite directly through the war that destroys uh, Russian assets in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine. So the previous strategy of Russian business was to invest in those Ukrainian oil refineries, you know, some coal businesses in eastern Ukraine, and then those businesses were just destroyed by war. So what kind of, uh, you know, economic strategy is behind that? And this happens on even bigger scale right now. So anything that's left of Russian investments in Ukraine, it's all been destroyed. And then I know that some people on Twitter particularly, so Twitter is fond of conspiracy theories. And then I saw this quote from some book being circulated that basically it's all about natural gas, that there is a huge, uh, huge, uh, huge source of natural gas in Eastern Ukraine, and this is why Russia started all this. And then these people just ignore that, first of all, to develop this source of natural gas, you need to spend, uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars. That's the first thing. Secondly, who will buy this gas? Who are the customers? If now, uh, you know, Europe is not buying Russian gas anymore. So in that sense, uh, economic logic doesn't have anything to do with this, apart from this very, you know, abstract idea that Putin was just reluctant to implement economic reform. Instead, he went to war. You know, on on this level, yes, there is some kind of economic logic. But apart from that, it's all about uh, so-called geopolitics. But even in terms of geopolitics, if you look closely, you see that this war just doesn't make sense. I mean, there was no threat to Russia. It's what those international relations scholars, they call it a war of choice. Right, so just just Putin chose to to have this war for 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 no real reason, not economic reason, no geopolitical reason, no no real reason. You know, apart from his fantasies that he can conquer Ukraine in just three days or whatever. I, I would add, uh, yeah, I would add. Um, I, I don't actually see it in terms of imperialism. I don't think that's the way to frame it. I think it's it's very simple that Putin had a complete bee in his bonnet about the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO. And he said that repeatedly since Munich in 2007. 
and that it was just very simple that um, he started this war to make sure that it didn't happen, which was why the Geneva round of, of talks um, in January with the Americans was so important, where he said, give me a guarantee for no NATO, and then uh, if you can, then we'll back off. Uh, of course, it didn't happen. And it's also, you have to understand that Putin is not interested in economics at all. And he's not interested in, or it's not important to him to be prosperous. You know, our system in the West, it's like based on the idea of uh, individual liberties and pursuit of happiness, which implies that you want to be prosperous. Whereas Putin is all about security. And that's what drives him. And he, if he has to sacrifice the prosperity of the country and the people, then get the security, then he's willing to do that. But what's so insane about this is that by starting this war, he's like massively undermined Russia's own security in so much as everybody now is supplying guns to Ukraine and uh, you know, Finland joined NATO, Sweden joined NATO, which is not in Russia's interest. And the whole thing is just blown up. But I, I think um, you, you could actually say that he's insane in the sense of Artie Lang's insanity whereby his perception of reality is slightly twisted and that he believed, and, and the key word here, he believed it was inevitable that NATO would attack. It's not just a threat. I, I, I really believe that he believed it was inevitable, which is why you act now and attack Ukraine to take that off the table before it can join NATO, before those missiles can come in, before NATO attacks Russia. And that's how I understand it. I, I don't know if it's true. Um, it's my working model. It explains everything. And it means that he's prepared to sacrifice long-term prosperity, but as long as Russian functions, that everyone's fed, everyone's heated, which is all going to happen, then um, he's happy to do that because then he's going to turn Ukraine into some sort of buffer zone along with Donbass, uh, and then he's got his security. And I think it's the only thing that's really Soviets about him because that was a Soviet thinking too. It was security comes first and then people and goods, you know, we'll do what we can to keep them happy. You know, Ilya, in an article you published, you said that sanctions against Russia present an unprecedented weaponization of economic ties. In their scale and significance, they are comparable to the Russo-Ukrainian war itself. You know, you say that uh, the long-term impact would be will be devastating. So I'm, you know, there's been a lot of assessments and expectations, you know, six months into this war about the economic impact on Russia. And I'm curious, you know, talk about some of the short term in the last six months. How has the economic situation in Russia changed? Right. So uh, if we look at uh, journalistic articles, we see that they kind of shift from this idea that Russia is imploding, Russian economy is collapsing to the opposite extreme, that, you know, Russian economy is weathering sanctions very well, uh, nothing happens to it. So both of these extremes are obviously wrong. So we see in the short term already very serious problems for the Russian economy. So uh, I did some calculations today on uh, the data on the Russian budget, on the Russian federal budget, and we see that, um, like, Russian budget is kept alive only by these very high uh, energy sales. So other than that, uh, the rest of the Russian economy is tanking and uh, revenues from anything else apart from energy 
is declining, and this decline is unprecedented. So, for instance, it's much worse than in 2020, the COVID year. So there was like 3% drop in GDP, but economic decline now is much, much worse. So uh, the only thing keeping Russian economy functioning, like in an okay manner, is this high uh, energy exports. But what happens when Europe finally stops uh, buying Russian oil? And this will happen, right? Of course, there are some workarounds you know, in, in this problem and Russia will use them. But still, this decline in energy profits is inevitable. And then what happens to the Russian budget? So it's, it, it doesn't look good uh, at all. And uh, the long-term prospects, of course, are even worse. So like Ben said, Elvira Nabiulina and her research department, they told us in March and April already that uh, Russian industry moves uh, one or two generations back in terms of technological you know, uh, advancement. And so while everyone else is moving forward, Russia is moving backwards in terms of technology. And uh, of course, this, this, is, this is devastating. You know? So imagine that just living in a country that moves backwards in time, in terms of technology, in terms of industry, in terms of the complexity of production. This is uh, quite awful. And uh, uh, these central bank analysts, they said that this could be a functioning economy. Yes, it could, it could, you know, it could survive, it could produce goods. But the problem is, uh, so uh, productivity will, will decline and the gap in productivity between Russia and the rest of the world will widen over time. So, like, yes, the people are still employed, even in some manufacturing, some import substitution manufacturing, but these are lower quality goods. They cost uh, more. And uh, it's just the general decline of everything. So in that sense, of course, it's quite devastating. But uh, in, the, in, in this phrase, I also meant that uh, there will be consequences for the world, not just for Russia. And we see already that uh, China is uh, preparing for sanctions that are similar to sanctions against Russia. So Chinese businesses uh, divest from America in order to avoid, you know, the seizure of their assets. And uh, they have these stress tests for kind of, you know, severe sanctions on the Chinese economy. And I think that uh, in this way, Putin kind of started or like encouraged this process of severing of the ties between big economic blocks, right? And uh, this process already started before, but now it's going even faster. So this is why there, there are global consequences. Yeah, Ben, it, back in July, Yale published this like economic assessment of Russia that was pretty on the apocalyptic side, and you wrote a major critique of it. So what is your sense of the impact so far in, in, in Russia? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually been a lot less than the impact of Russia playing around with energy prices has been on Europe. I mean, we were just looking at this in, at the moment. I mean, the inflation has been driven up in in Europe for food and energy prices in particular, both of which are commodities that Russia controls. Um, talking to our correspondent in Moscow, life on the streets pretty normal. People are complaining food prices a bit higher, cost of clothing has doubled, but uh, and a lot of the international brands have disappeared, um, but they're all now reappearing because of the parallel imports coming through Turkey, where the ports there are just chock full of containers. Turkey's actually Trade with Russia is up by half year on year. I mean, it's, it's making a business out of sanctions, and Erdogan's pushing that to the to the edge. 
but it is exactly right. I mean, the the, the two things in the in the short term, the exports of energy are still high because it's impossible for Europe to turn off the gas or the oil overnight. It's going to take time. And that provides revenues for the short to medium term. And then the long term, we already made the point about the technology disappearing, kills the productivity, which reduces your growth potential to something very small. And so then, you know, you're doomed to stagnation. You just fall slowly, more and more slowly behind. But I, I think um, the thing I'm looking at the moment is actually that there's two crises going on. Um, there's the crisis in Russia, which is affecting all of industry because of the sanctions and this lack of imports of lots of very important inputs. But now we have a crisis in Europe, the energy crisis and the food inflation, which is very severe as well. And the question I've been looking at is trying to work out which one is worse because the two sides, I mean, normally diplomacy is like two guys fencing, elegant, you know, precise, with sharp swords or beer. Uh, what we've got now are just two guys with cudgels taking turns at hitting each other in the head and doing massive damage. We had a look this week at um, all the industry in Europe that's shutting down, not just in Central, which, you know, into Western Europe. And you've got dozens of big steel plants, chemical plants, fertilizer plants, glass makers in Europe shutting down because their businesses are no longer viable. And this is at a time when all of those metal and chemical and fertilizer products, a lot of which was exported from Russia, have also disappeared because of sanctions. And so how much damage is that going to do? And of course, it's been a lot, you know, the, the, the impact on the consumer with the cost of their, their bills gone shooting up. And governments in the West, um, they have to subsidize that. You can't turn around to a guy who's been paying 400 euros a month for his power bill, like me, and say, you have to pay 4,000. It, it doesn't work. You're, you'll have riots here. And then whatever support there is for Ukraine amongst the population will disappear, which means that the governments in the West have to um, cap it and take the cost. But the money that's being poured into that already, I mean, the EU's already spent $300 billion on relief for the first um, three, four months of the war. And we just had around um, 140 from Europe, 65 from Germany, 50 from Italy, just those three countries have added another quarter trillion of spending to support cap these things. And, and it's not even winter yet. So we've got a real fight here. Uh, and of course, all the attention is, is on what's happening to the Russian economy and the successes in, in the Kharkiv offensive in Ukraine. Very uh, encouraging, really good news. However, the war is far from over. And Russia is going to continue to play silly buggers with these commodities. And we're looking at gas now. The gas prices have come off, but they remain, what, what is it, 200% up year on year uh, and about 400% up on the five-year average. So it's still extremely expensive. And Putin's been making noises, the Istanbul grainer deal that allowed all the wheat to come out. So wheat's now trading at prices below pre-war level because the harvest of Russia and Ukraine is a good one. However, that deal only expires in 120 days, so in November, and then it has to be renewed. And the Kremlin is already making noises that all their problems, technical difficulties. So um, I, I sincerely think this is Putin's plan, that he's going to counter the sanctions by taking all the commodities that he controls and disrupting supplies to the markets. And the goal here is simply to push the prices up 
to stoke the fear. Because then that is what does the damage to the West and it's going to make the West pay and pay and pay until some point they don't want to anymore, that it gets too expensive. And moreover, unlike the sanctions on Russia, they haven't affected the consumer badly. I mean, some, but not badly. However, the, the, the commodities manipulation that Putin's doing is affecting the consumer in the West. And it turns up even in the States, they just printed um, 8.3 percent inflation, which was a shock, much higher than they thought. And it caused the markets uh, to sell off hard and um, it's going to cause political problems in the long term. But it's nothing like what Europe faces, where the consumers are really in the front line. And there also seems, last thing I'll say on that, there seems to be an assumption that come April next year, this will all be over. The energy crisis will be over, food crisis will be over, we'll be fine, we just need to get through the winter. And I don't think that's the case. I think this is going to go on for a while. And we're going to have to live with high costs of commodities, energy, food going forward. And that's going to cause problems in the West because it's going to drive up the cost of borrowing. It's going to cause the West to do a massive amount of borrowing on balance sheets that were already strained by the spending they did for COVID. And in Africa, in the, uh, the, the frontier markets, we've already got a debt crisis. People going bankrupt, you know, running to the IMF. Several countries in Africa got into deep trouble. So I'm still very pessimistic. Um, I'm just hoping that the attack in Ukraine will collapse because of lack of confidence and that this could all be over quickly. And if that doesn't happen, then I think we're going to have these two guys bashing each other with cudgels for it could be years. Yeah, talk about the the you know, add to the regional impact of this, Ilya. And is anyone benefiting? I mean, because there's lots of talk about, you know, shifting Russia's imports. You know, Russia is is isolated from the West, but you still have China, India, Turkey, and other countries that are, you know, maintaining relations and economic ties. So is, you know, is anyone benefiting from this? I'm guessing that uh, to some extent, uh, countries like India are benefiting because uh, they get Russian oil at a huge uh, discount. But uh, uh, in general, uh, so um, this interesting thing that uh, I learned recently was uh, you can look at uh, dollar and euro and the exchange rate, and you see that uh, euro currency is getting uh, weaker because America basically has both the resources and the industrial base, and uh, extremely advanced economy. And Europe has a very advanced economy, but doesn't have uh, so much uh, resources, right? And in, in this way, the trajectory for Europe, like this general trajectory, is worse than for America, because America has its own oil. So it's the biggest oil producer in the world. It has its own natural gas. It has its own everything, including food. And also, they have the technology. You know, so America is kind of self-contained. So what Putin wishes Russia could be, so America is already like self-contained in most things. And uh, for them, it's much better than for Europe, right? Uh, for uh, for China, uh, probably it's also, it's, it's not worse, I think, because uh, they can, uh, well, they don't like this instability in the region, but at the same time, uh, they they too can get uh, Russian energy uh, at a discount, right? So, but the thing is, even though it seems that Russia is you know doing okay, 
at the moment. The problem is that Europe will adjust to the situation eventually. And I would add to what uh, Ben was saying, that even if the war stops, I don't think that Europe will uh, increase the the, uh, imports of Russian gas. I don't think this will happen. Even after the complete uh, uh, stop to the war, uh, still Europe will not resume buying Russian gas in any significant quantities because they had enough of this kind of blackmail, I don't think that any country in the world will would agree to just go back to normal after this, after this kind of incredible blackmail. And this is why for Russia, it's permanent. It's permanent damage, right? So for Europe, it's, you know, survivable. For Russia, it's permanent damage. And without this uh, pipeline network that uh, gets gas to Europe, what does Russia have in terms of its economy? So yes, it has uh, some LNG capacity for the gas, uh, some some tankers, but not enough to transport its own oil to to East uh, Asian countries, and uh, but not much beyond that. So what's going to happen to Russian economy if these uh, economic ties with Europe are severed, you know, for decades to come? So Russia is the ultimate loser. I mean, uh, I, I mean, in the conflict itself, of course, Ukraine is the country that suffered the most clearly. But in terms of this economic conflict, Russia is the ultimate loser. So Europe is losing, uh, but Russia is losing more from this. And also this just this general idea that Europe is basically the most prosperous, the most economically successful place in the world. So who will win in this conflict? You know, Russia, a very backward and small economy, or Europe, the, the, the region that invented capitalism. It's not smart to, 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 to have this confrontation with the region that literally invented this whole game. You can't play this game because you had it for 30 years and they had it for five you know, centuries. So they, they, they know more about capitalism than you do, like in general. So this, this kind of hubris is very strange from coming from Putin. So, But there are, there are two clear winners from this, um, the first being Turkey. And Erdogan has come out of this economically very strong because he's got he's refused to engage in sanctions, but he's managed to place himself geopolitically in the middle between the warring parties. And so he's been on a roll trying to increase his influence in the region, his region, uh, the Black Sea region. And now that's going very well. Uh, it's very successful. And he's like you know the middleman between the superpowers. And Azerbaijan um, has also been suddenly whitewashed of all horrible human rights abuses and everything. And now you've got von Leiden going down there, shaking his hand, all smiles because they're doing a gas deal. And all that stuff with, oh, actually, you've just restarted the war, unprovoked war that you started two years ago, and you've just gone and bombed everyone. But never mind, we won't mention that. Just you know, send us your gas. It's not a problem that you're fighting the war. But, I mean, that's about it, I think. Uh, China's in kind of an awkward position um, where Russia, well, I mean, it's benefited in so much as Russia is now completely beholden to China. And it has no choice but to deal with China. And China is kind of okay with that. But the Chinese biggest export market by far is the States and the EU. And so they have such economic ties, such commitment to that market, plus all the money they've got in U.S. Treasury bonds. Um, so it can't afford to be sanctioned. So they've got to... I, I did an analogy. It's like, you know, we're all still friends with Putin, but suddenly he's become extremely smelly. And so you just don't want to stand too close to him. 
but he's still your friend. And that's kind of where Russia finds itself. It's like this really badly smelling friend that people are not going to get rid of, but they're just not going to stand next to you. Gamarjoba, my name is Roberto, and I would like to sincerely thank you for taking the time to check out my podcast, The History of Sacartvelo, Georgia. In all likelihood, I would venture to guess that you found us because you were searching for either podcasts, YouTube videos, blogs about the history of Georgia, or you're hearing this on another podcast, like this one. I'm both sorry and happy to report that this beautiful and fascinating country is, to my great surprise, criminally underrated in the history world. As of now, this is the only podcast I am aware of dedicated to the full history of a nation and a people that have served as the battleground for empires all throughout European and Asian history. But the land of the Kartveli is so much more than that. The birthplace of wine, the second Christian kingdom, the land of fantastic food, nearly superhuman dancers and musicians, and perhaps, most importantly, a people that have preserved their culture, pride, and independence after centuries of one conquest after another. Empires rise and fall, but Sacardvelo always seems to survive in the end. So, let us celebrate this beautiful land by coming with me on this journey from prehistory to the present day, right here at the History of Sacardvelo, Georgia. You can find us on our website, historyofsacardvelo.com, or on Twitter at history underscore Georgia. Sacardvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Now, you know, it, it's often said that the, the ultimate goal of sanctions are to change behavior, right? And, and both of you, I think, have said that, you know, nothing, if the war stops tomorrow, Russia's, the, the relationship with Russia isn't going to change overnight because really it seems that the only, the main political purpose is to basically get rid of Putin and his people. That's the, yeah, go ahead. Let me jump into that one. Yeah, I mean, the you know, the, the, the sanctions are a diplomatic tool, and they're supposed to be done in such a way that, uh, and this was the Steinmeier proposal before the war started, that you know, if you do this, then we'll take that sanction off, and if you do that, that we'll take that sanction off, and that's uh, diplomatically how they're supposed to be. And but these sanctions are not sanctions in that sense. These sanctions are economic weapons. And von Leyen said very clearly from the outset. The goal of these sanctions are to denigrate the Russian economy and to reduce it as much as possible and as severely as possible. And that's not a diplomatic tool. That is economic war. So we have to be clear about this. There's no diplomacy here. This is like a, a, a you know a kinetic attack by the Russians has been countered by an economic attack by the West designed to wreck the Russian economy as badly, as much as it can, without getting pulled in. Because, I mean, that's the, 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 the weird thing about this situation is the West is absolutely not going to put anybody on the ground. It's not going to do anything but send weapons. And at some point, you send so many weapons. I mean, we've got this issue with long-range missiles just came up, you know, because the HIMARS have been so effective that, you know, the Ukrainians are asking for longer range. And the West has said, no, we're not going to send those because then you could hit Russian territory from Kharkiv, wherever. Um, and then that would be an act of war. And we're kind of on the cusp of West act of war already. And so we've got this weird situation where we're trying to give as much help to the Ukrainians as we can, 
without crossing that line. And Biden said explicitly um, at some conference last month that we're going to go up to that line and put our toes on it. So they're going to, but, but you know, at some point, this is how this could run out of control is that the Russians would just say, right, you stepped over. So we're at war with NATO. And then we're going to start hitting supply logistics in Poland, in Romania, in Hungary to take their stuff out because these become legit, legitimate military targets. And actually, it's kind of hard to say that those aren't leg legitimate targets if all those weapons are stopping off in Poland on the way to Ukraine. Your thoughts, uh, Ilya? Yeah, I agree completely that uh, the sanctions are not, uh, you know, what, what we commonly think of sanctions. So the purpose is to degrade Russia to an extent that it's unable to pursue this war and to start new wars and not to, you know, change the regime or change the behavior of Putin. So this is all, you know, it's all in the past. So now the only thing, as I understand it, the only thing that matters for for the West is to make that, you know, to, to make the situation where Russia cannot wage new wars and, and has to stop this war because it's unable to, to wage this particular war. So, which is, of course, pretty awful, I mean, for, for the Russian population because, uh, the, you know, like before we talked about so-called smart sanctions that are somehow avoiding the general population and only targeting the elite. And now this is completely forgotten because in order to degrade the Russian economy, you need to make the lives of everyone who lives in Russia worse. So this is uh, this is not uh, this is not a great uh, prospect. And in that sense, uh, you know, Putin started something that 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 is just such a big tectonic shift in everything. You know, in Russia's future, in Europe's future, in the world's future. But it seems to me that, you know, the only way back from this is once Putin's gone and some of his key people or or there's people who might, you know, be waiting in the wings who could institute the reforms that, you know, would be desirable to stop this economic warfare. So do you see that as a do either of you see Putin being either losing power, leaving power, however it goes as the ultimate goal of the sanctions? But at the same time, both of you are saying it's really to degrade Russia for, a, it seems like, the long term. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I think that uh, sanctions will stay and they will stay on uh, like 100 uh, percent, even if uh, Putin goes, whichever way, it's not even important. So uh, sanctions, some of the sanctions might be lifted if Russia demonstrates uh, like reducing its own uh, military capacity for conventional warfare. So if Russia can prove that it does not produce uh, tanks, it does not produce uh, missiles and stuff like that, then maybe some of the sanctions will be lifted. Just by this logic that if the goal of sanctions is to stop Russia from waging wars, no one will believe that the new government will not do this, even if it's declaring itself to be a democratic government. Because when Putin came to power, he was also an ally of the West and uh, a liberal and a democrat and so on. So no one will believe it. And the problem is the amount of Russian lies is so big that no one is going to believe what Russian leaders say for decades to come. I'm completely sure about it. That is just, you know, the amount of lies, the amount of fabrications, of just complete denial of reality. It's just so big that people just won't believe anything that even you Russian leaders 
say, even if Navalny becomes president, no one will believe him either, even though he was literally, you know, like almost uh, murdered. So the only way to lift sanctions would be to invite, you know, those international inspectors and to demonstrate that Ural Zavod is, you know, closed down, it's not producing tanks anymore, something like this. And this is, of course... I agree. The way to think of it, surely, is is like this is the same as Germany and Hitler. And that, you know, Putin is Hitler uh, as bad. And, well, maybe not quite as bad, but still beyond the pale. And that it took, after Germany's defeat, it took, what, two, three generations before people had kind of forgotten about that Nazi legacy. And it was certainly a theme when I was a boy and my father was a child of the war and his father was a war refugee. And, you know, here today I'm married with my kids are half German. So I think we're we're beyond it. Actually, the World Cup, when it was held in Germany, I think played a big part of everyone getting over that. And um, the rush is going to be the same. It's going to be generations uh, before it's even prepared. The West is prepared to forgive it for what happened. And just the hate this whole campaign has generated. I mean, listening to the Ukrainians, that's shocking. Because the Ukrainians, and I should be careful saying this in front of idiot, but Ukrainians and, and Russians have always seen each other, you know, it's like cousins, brothers, whatever you want to call it, family. Uh, and now the, the level of hatred towards Russia and Ukraine, that just didn't exist. It just polarized it. I mean, the upside is it's created a nation, a sense of nationhood which didn't exist before. Um, uh, but it's it's depressing, and as the, I completely agree with Ilya that there's there's no way any of these sanctions are going to come off uh, ever in my life. I think I don't see how you'd have to have Russia totally defeated, with you know Americans marching to Moscow and then like with the Japanese rewriting the constitution, that kind of scenario, which of course is not going to happen. So um, it's going to be permanently pariahed. I mean, the outlook for Russia, the Russian people, is just I don't know. It's pretty poor. What, so what about the political stability in Russia? Because you, we have been seeing a level of repression that we hadn't seen previously in, in within Russia. Um, is there, you know, how long can they maintain political stability, uh, if at all, given the dire picture that both of you are painting for the future? I would have said that I, I don't see any signs at all of any dissent or unhappiness in the general Russian population with what's going on. That at the moment, Putin's got the same rally around the flag, sense of national pride that he had in 2014. Uh, and everybody's with the war. He's very good at his propaganda. When you talk to the sort of urban, westernized, elite young people, then they don't like it. Uh, and they're disappointed and ashamed, but this is a very small, minority and moreover no one's saying anything out loud because of the repression and how long can putin keep that up i don't know forever i mean he swept the board i mean when navalny came back and got arrested in january last year um the sort of gloves came off in so much as like well we're going to get pillared for this in such a way that it doesn't matter anymore and I think that just like, all right, we're going to now, we're just going to clean the stables. We're going to close Dodge. We're going to close down all the opposition publications. Uh, we're going to go after all the political um, activists, drive them out of the country and just take complete control. And there was like before, Galeotti described it as like repression lights, where they kind of, you know, 
did all these nasty things, but kind of dress it up. And, you know, some of them arrested, they let them out. There was an outcry. Now it's just like, no, you're going to jail for 15 years. If you say anything we don't like, that's it. That's, that's the game now. Yeah, so I think I disagree here slightly because it's true that uh, basically all anti-war sections of society face like this extreme repression. But at the same time, the thing is, everything is decided on the battlefield. So Putin staked everything on this war and everything is decided on the battlefield. And the problem is uh, Putin is able to... Um, uh, to prevent the war uh, from spilling into you know the everyday lives of the people, but precisely because of this, he is also losing the war. So uh, he's fighting with the peacetime army, and it's abundantly clear that there are just not enough troops, and uh, voluntarily people don't want to go to this war. It's it just you know it becomes clear every day that nobody wants to go to war. Uh, in Ukraine. So the number, the recruitment numbers are very small. They are not nearly enough to do anything on the battle, on the battle lines. And so, uh, you know, if, if the situation stays like that, then the war will be lost. And uh, uh, there are always questions. So what does it mean that the war is lost? So to me, uh, a clear answer is that uh, Ukrainians advancing uh, past the positions that uh, Russians were having before February 24. So if Ukrainians uh, retake part of uh, Luhansk and uh, Donetsk uh, regions that were occupied, you know, by, by Russia before February 24, that this means losing the war, you know, because this is, uh, this is not just not an improvement, but it's uh, a big uh, step backwards for, for the Russian military. So this means losing the war. And then, and, and this can totally happen. Just judging by what's going on on the front lines, it can totally happen. And uh, all those uh, Telegram channels that are this, you know, that so pro-war channels, they are reporting it, they're saying it like it is, that Russia is losing the war. Like the general picture you can get from them is that Russia is losing. So if that happens, then I, I'm completely sure about it. Then political stability is gone because Putin has to answer for this. People will just come up to him, you know, his entourage, his, uh, his closest circle, someone around him. They will say, say, so, okay, so you got us all into this. So what now? So what, what are you going to do now? What, what, what do you propose now? So because if Russia was successful, then it could be like, I don't know, another 70 years of uh, neo-Russian empire or something like this. But Russia was not successful. And then I think that some kind of political turbulence will happen very soon. Can I ask, Ilya, can I ask you a question? Um, so I've always maintained that part of Putin's power is um, his popularity with the people, and that is very high. And that insulates him from a palace coup, because with that popularity, he can rally the people that he, he, he protects, and no one's going to go against him because of that. But if he maintains his popularity with the people, which he has done at the moment, doesn't that make it very difficult for there to be some sort of palace coup and saying, look, you screwed up, you've lost the war. However, the, he's explained it to the people like it wasn't my fault, it's NATO, they've sent their best weapons, so we blame that. And if he can get away with that, wouldn't that prevent him, doesn't that insulate him from a palace coup? Because I, I think the possibilities of palace coup are very low. Um, that he's, uh, he's spent a lot of time investing into his relationship with the FSB, and that's the core of his power, and that will protect him. 
Right. So uh, I look at this a bit differently because what do we mean when we say Putin's popularity? Right. So, for instance, uh, we can uh, remember this episode with uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. There was a coup against him and the people literally surrounded the presidential palace to protect Chavez with their own bodies because they loved Chavez so much. So this is popularity. And with Putin, this popularity is like, yeah, Putin is okay. I like him, so I watch TV, but I will not move my finger to support him in any active way. And if uh, for some reason uh, Astankina and the first channel, they announced that, you know, Vladimir Putin is deposed, we have the new guy now, so he's your new president, most people would say, okay, so we understand. So there's a new Putin. Because they don't like Putin, you know, actively. They kind of, they're okay with him, but they don't love him. <laughs> so, <laughs> And also the, they, their support for Putin is based on this... Uh, Jingaist kind of macho image. And then Putin lost the war and people like, yeah, he couldn't do it. So maybe he needs to go. So uh, in that sense, uh, yeah, w- what can help Putin is, uh, like you said, Ben, it's his, uh, it's the FSB and uh, the, the, the whole apparatus that he built in order to protect himself, basically. But this will be FSB people who will come to him because uh, they, they don't like that their incomes have gone down from all this corruption and uh, rents from all these businesses and so on. And also, they I, I, I believe that some of them, they just don't see any kind of future. So what's next for Russia? What are we going to do next if, uh, if we lost this war? Do we prepare for another 10 years for another war? But in 10 years, we will have 300,000 NATO troops in Europe, and we will have new extremely advanced weapons, and Ukraine will be fully prepared because, like Zelensky said, Ukraine should be like Israel, constantly prepared for war. So maybe we will lose another campaign as well. So maybe this is all pointless. And if it's all pointless, then why, why do we have to stick with Putin? You know, so like I personally believe that a military failure will be a, a very serious problem. Of course, we cannot say anything like 100%, but I think it's going to be a very serious problem. And the people will take whatever, whatever you know, comes out of it. They will say, okay, we understand. So yeah, he failed. Maybe we need a new guy. Yeah, that's, that's what's the, one of the contradictions that uh, I think you pointed to earlier, Ilya, is that on the one hand, um, Putin in the last you know, two decades has pacified the population politically. It wants a kind of apathetic... Political, you know, politics of amongst the population to give this just to give fealty, not necessarily participate. And then in the run up to war, there was really no preparation on the part of the government to prepare the population for a war. And now they're stuck in this position of, well, we don't have enough to actually win it. We need to maybe there's all this discussion now of mobilization and what the hell does that mean? We don't know, but. That means, as you said, would bring the pop make the war come home to many more people in Russia. So it's it's this. On the one hand, he's built this system of based on political passivity, but on the hand, now he needs it, especially if you know, as you both are saying, if there is some sort of political instability, will the people protect him? I mean, I, I tend to agree with you, Ilya. You know, just actually from reading stuff that um, Greg Yudin has written about people's attitudes towards the regime is, it seems to me, also very passive. Exactly. And uh, I agree with uh, Greg's uh, formulation. 
so Putin paradoxically relies both on this small minority of people who are actively pro-war, who want to wage this war, who, who want to win in Ukraine, and also this big majority of people who are completely apathetic and they kind of they accept the situation, but they don't want to do anything with it. So he relies on both groups. But in this way, he cannot win the war. In order to win the war, and this is not certain at all, but in order to try and win the war, he needs to bring the war home. And if he brings the war home, who knows how the people will react? Because they are not accustomed to this kind of treatment. They are usually more or less like left alone, you know, ordinary people. Not intellectuals, not the opposition, but ordinary people, they are left alone. And so, and then suddenly he says, okay, you need to go to uh, Vinkamat, military commissariat, and uh, and go to Ukraine. Previously, people went there for a lot of money, and you will go there for free just to die. You know, so it's very difficult for me to believe that uh, this will be without consequences. And so he's kind of stuck in this situation. So, of course, uh, there is a lot of potential to uh, basically hurt Ukraine without even making this, you know, without making these offensives, these advances. So now they will probably focus on just bombing everything in Ukraine without any reservations, which looks basically like terrorism, I would say, you know. So just in order to force Ukraine to somehow go to the negotiation table. But this might not work at all, because at some point Ukraine might also bomb uh, Russia. Even without NATO weapons, with these old Soviet missiles, they, they proved that uh, they're able to do this. So I wanted to, yeah. Well, it's 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 like the Second World War. I mean, this terror terrorism tactics. The the Ukrainian people <clears throat> have been radicalized to the point that if Zelensky turns around and says, "Right, everybody, pick up a gun. We're all going to the front line," that ninety seven percent of the population would be there, and that's almost impossible to defeat. When on the other side, you have these Buratian conscripts uh, being you know twenty years old who come from the village in the middle of nowhere have been told to fight against these these heroes. I mean, they really are heroes, motivated, increasingly well-equipped troops. And so I, I don't see how this is... It's, it's Russia's only option is to pound it with artillery in the hope that you're going to break the will of the Ukrainians. But then we end up with this, you know, Hitler scenario again because you try and inflict terror on them and it won't work. Uh, they're, they're radicalized to the point that they'll just take anything and everything until this is over. I mean, we don't even need to go to World War II. I mean, the, the latter half of the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century have proven that, you know, bombing a country into submission isn't exactly the most effective way, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, populations resist and, and they can endure a lot if they have exactly as you said, Ben, they have this morale, right? They're fighting for their survival, for their nation. They have something to fight for, their homes. Um, uh, go ahead, Pelia. Yeah, and another like last thing is that uh, the situation will not uh, continue indefinitely because Ukraine keeps advancing on Russian uh, positions. So it's not like they're going to wait until Russia rolls out all of these missiles, you know, destroys everything. So then they're not going to wait. They're going to continue their offensive. And they already have enough capacity to do this. And so this whole thing might be resolved in the next two, three months. I know that most analysts, they say that the war will continue in the next year as well. But some kind of decisive strike might happen even before the end of this year. So it does not look good good for Putin at all. 
in the end. Um, and finally, uh, what do you both of you are going to be paying attention to and looking at uh, in the coming months in terms of an economy or the political situation, the war? Ben, what are you focusing on? Uh, I'm focused on the economy and these two crises, how they're playing against each other. Um, particularly, um, I've just done a deep dive into the power sector. And although European power sector looks very balanced, I mean, it produces something like 360 terawatt hours and only imported one terawatt hour last year. So it looks like it's got plenty of power. Actually, if you look within it, there's huge discrepancies. I mean, the French nuclear power, uh, they've lost 100 terawatt hours and the Germans have taken 65 out with these nuclear. And at the same time, because of the drought in the summer, that uh, Austria and, and Hungary, which rely on hydro, they're down by 30, 40. And what you've done is you've got a system that's been set up, which is incredibly finely balanced, and it takes very little shocks in order to make it, the power stations start closing down and have rolling black, uh, black, uh, blackouts across Europe. And then what that will do politically uh, to European support for the war and sanctions and to what extent are the Europeans like, yeah, well, of course, we're for Ukraine. The feeling here is very strong, pro-support Ukraine. Um, Berlin's full of Ukrainian uh, refugees. However, if you actually start charging people 5000 of their bill and, you know, have them at Christmas Day sitting in the dark with candles, uh, to what extent will that continue? And that's to be measured against, you know, the budget surplus in the Russia is evaporated. Uh, from a 1% surplus at the start of the war and um, the, the economy is slowing down, people will start losing their jobs. All those foreign companies that closed down or pulled out, um, they've all been employing, paying their staff. It's 10% of the world population. Um, but those deals are going to start stopping. You know, but, um, whether the Kremlin is going to organize or the companies are trying to organize, selling their companies to locals um, remains to be seen. So uh, the... The military campaign is taking its own direction and is going the Ukrainian way. Um, but as for this economic war of these, these, you know, these combatants, I think that's just starting to rev up uh, and will get worse and more extreme as this goes on. And there, Putin's position is much stronger than militarily. There, he can really cause some trouble. There, Europe, because of its disunity, um, has real vulnerabilities, uh, which he's going to try and uh, play on. And like I say, I'm expecting possibility of the grain crisis thing to resurface in November and be very interested to see how the uh, the G20 in Indonesia goes, to what extent that he can rally the rest of the world around him to his cause. So um, there's still a long way to go with all of this. It's not just, you know, victory on the battlefield, for the, I mean, for the short term. So uh, I would add that uh, the story with uh, oil price cap is also still ongoing. So whether they will be able to implement this cap on uh, Russian oil and uh, whether it will be successful and other countries will uh, stick to this uh, limit on Russian oil uh, sales. So we will see because this is the most difficult kind of you know sanction to implement so far and it's clear that uh, the west is not really succeeding in this because it's it's not clear how it will work logistically but maybe they will come with something you know to to make it work but also i would look at a kind of subtle uh, signs 
coming from the Kremlin in terms of political tensions, because just recently we had this very strange story, and it's not it was not discussed, uh, you know, as widely as it should, I think. So this uh, Reuters uh, story about uh, Dmitry Kozak, uh, Putin's uh, envoy to negotiations uh, before before February with Ukraine. So apparently these three sources close to Russian government, as they said in the story, right? These three sources told uh, this news agency that uh, Kozak actually reached a deal with uh, Ukrainians and uh, this deal prevented Ukraine from joining NATO and he came to Putin with this deal and then Putin rejected it and uh, said that I want to occupy, you know, half of Ukraine. This is my desire now. So the, the big thing is that, the big question is, uh, they clearly based this story on something. So they talked to some people. And then what would be the motivation for these people close to the Russian government? What would be the motivation for them to talk to the Western journalists? Why would they leak this story, right? And the fact that they leaked this story, in my opinion, indicates that there is something going on there. And uh, they probably want to show that some parts of the Russian elite, they are more capable of negotiations than Putin himself. That, you know, Putin is crazy, but we can actually negotiate, we can make some deals, and we even asked him to make a deal, but he refused because he's crazy. This is how I read the story. And uh, this might be, you know, the first sign that something is going on. And uh, the more these military defeats progress, the more signs like this we will see. So this is something to look at. That was Ben Aris and Ilya Mitbeev. Ben Aris is the founder and editor of BNE Italy News, a specialist business, economics, and finance outlet covering Russia and Eastern Europe. And you can follow Ben on Twitter at BNE Editor. And Ilya Mitbeev is a political economist formerly based in St. Petersburg and a member of the editorial collective for Posle, a new Russian anti-war website and the co-founder of the New Political Science School. So, what are my kind of, here are some short comments and takeaways of this interview. I basically have three points I want to make. Um, You know, in the last 20 years or so, or even we can say 30 years, when sanctions have been a, a mechanism in which Western governments, and primarily the United States, has used to influence various states' be political behavior. I mean, I think Iran is a perfect example, the Iraq as well. Um, and the beginning of the sanctions and the way they were talked about uh, before they were implemented on Russia were to change Putin's behavior. Now, six months down the road, especially if you consider some of the long-term effects that both Ben and Ilya pointed to, these are a different form of sanctions. This is outright economic warfare. As you know, and this is an aspect that I think we can safely say that the West, the collective West, is at war with Russia through economics and, of course, supplying weapons to Ukraine. And these uh, sanctions aren't to change Putin's behavior. Both Ben and Ilya were pretty clear that they didn't think the sanctions would end just with, say, Putin leaving power. These sanctions are really to have a long term effect on Russia's capacity to wage war short term, perhaps wage war now, but also the long term to wage war in the future. So I think that's really clear that 
these aren't just normal sanctions. These are, these are weapons of warfare. The other thing that struck me is that despite Russia's peripheral status in the global economy, right, it's mostly exporting commodities uh, and metals and other, you know, products used in, in industrial production, uh, but imports virtually everything else, particularly advanced technologies. Um, so Russia's status on the global economy is pretty peripheral, but it plays an incredibly important role in the region. And we can see this most clearly in the economic, out, uh, the economic blowback within Europe, uh, both in terms of inflation, utility costs, and really uh, it's the way Ben describes it, that at least in the short term, uh, it's the Europeans that are losing the economic war so far. Uh, Russia has done well pretty, pretty, you know, pretty much in the short term, though the prospects of its long-term economic status remain quite um, tenuous and precarious. But I, I think that's a really in interesting aspect of the war is that these uh, sanctions aren't just a one-way street. They, they are causing blowback also in the very countries that are implementing them. And lastly, you know, in terms of larger developments, in terms of global, what we used to call globalization, it's interesting that globalization isn't really a thing, an aspiration anymore. What we're seeing is, and this started, as Ilya said, in 2014, the decoupling of Russia from the global economy, from globalization or the deglobalization of Russia. But as tensions mount, um, not only around this war, and there's more economic fallout, and of course, the role, the place of China and the growing geopolitical tensions between the United States and China in particular, uh, we could be seeing the beginnings of various economic blocks decoupling from each other or states co coalescing in economic blocks that are closely aligned along geopolitical lines. So I think in this sense, where we're going to be in terms of the global economy five, 10 years from now, I mean, what do I know? But it seems that the era of globalization is beginning to break down or at least experience some main shocks. So. Those are some of my takeaways. I have a lot more, but I won't belabor them now. Um, so I hope you found those interesting. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. Now, if you like this podcast, I really, really encourage you to help us out and spread the word. You know, I'm not looking to get millions and millions of listeners here. I know that the subject matter has a finite audience. But I would like more people to hear it. So if you have a moment and you like, like what we do here, please share it on social media. Tell your friends and family about it. Send out an email uh, promoting the podcast. Word of mouth is really the best way to get people to listen. Also, feel free to drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter or at srbpodcast.org. And as always, this is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and I would love to have your support. Uh, this podcast relies on the support of individual listeners and other institutions to keep it free from paid advertising and open to all listeners. So please help me keep it that way by going to srbpodcast.org, find that Patreon button, click it, become a monthly patron. And until next time, bye. <laughs>